Welcome to the Singapore Management University podcast series, where we feature the latest insights and perspectives from our faculty. In 2013, the United States Supreme Court held that it had no jurisdiction to hear a case relating to conduct which occurred outside U.S. territory and that concerned a suit brought against a company based outside the U.S., Referred to as the Curebell decision, it represents a significant shift of the aperture of transnational corporate accountability away from the U.S., which generally has been the default venue, and towards regional and foreign jurisdictions where violations occur or where responsible beneficiaries of the wrongdoings reside or conduct their businesses. Madhav Mohan, an assistant professor of law at the SMU School of Law, has been involved in award-winning research and writing in the fields of international law and conflict resolution. His international litigation before the UN-backed Khmer Rouge Tribunal has also earned him Singapore's Outstanding Young Person Award for his contributions to the promotion of human rights. In his recent scholarly article entitled The Road to Song Mao, Transnational Litigation from Southeast Asia to the United Kingdom, published in a special issue of the American Journal of International Law, Assistant Professor Moen wrote that anxieties caused by the U.S. Supreme Court's decision should not eclipse the fact that redress can and at times should be secured in the U.K. and elsewhere. In this podcast, he shares his insights on transnational litigation and examines the learning points that businesses, policy makers and courts can draw from the Songmao case. In this podcast, he shares his insights on transnational litigation and examines the learning points that businesses, policy makers and courts can draw from the Songmao case. Certainly. I think um, I would say there are two points that inspired me. The first was an opportunity to um, conduct a academic fellowship in the Bellagio Center, which is organized by the Rockefeller uh, Center in America. And this fellowship o- allowed me a month of residential academic uh, research and writing. And so that sort of set up the pace for me to do so uh, in connection with other fellows from across the world who had been researching and writing on economics, social science and law, all with a specific focus on how we could sort of change the world for the better. Um, So that would be the main focus as to how I was inspired to write about this. The second reason why I specifically looked at transnational litigation in the context of human rights was because of a US Supreme Court decision that was delivered late last year, which uh, decided uh, for the first time quite controversially that the U.S. Supreme Court would not listen to cases that happened elsewhere but were brought before the U.S. Supreme Court, which had been the previous position. Um, And that made me think of what would be options for cases that started off from Southeast Asia, and if not the U.S., then where else should uh, complainants be looking towards. Could you tell us more about this research? The thrust of the article actually turns on a few points, and the first point turns on the case of Song Mao, versus Tate and Lyle. And this case, which is the basis of this article, is centered on a claim brought by Cambodian villagers in the province of Kokong in Cambodia. This claim was first started in 2006 and interestingly did not just originate in one place or end in the other. It had a string of procedures, first beginning in Cambodia, as we would imagine, uh, to seek some sort of relief 
uh, for a land eviction where the sugar plantations belonging to Cambodian villagers had been acquired forcibly by a company. Interestingly, when that sugar was followed in terms of the plantations that were acquired, that sugar had an obvious value. And that sugar was traced to both Taiwanese companies, Thai companies, as well as a British company. And this provided a basis for the villagers to bring several claims. First, before the Thai National Human Rights Commission, because of the ASEAN Declaration of Human Rights. And next, on the basis of the fact that the UK company had been involved before the UK courts as well. So that was the main reason or the main thrust behind my article. And my thesis is that perhaps going forward, because there isn't going to be much scope for US litigation where human rights issues are raised in the context of business uh, conduct, maybe the best way forward is to look at what could happen at home, in the region, and maybe in the in the courts of a country which is most directly concerned. In this case was the UK, because a UK company was involved. What were some of your findings? The findings stemmed from a variety of research sources that uh, were revealed during the course of research. The first was that apart from the litigation itself, so and I think in re usual legal academic articles, we are confined to the cases that we are considering. So in this case, I had the Song Mao litigation, both in terms of the pleadings before the court, as well as the earlier decisions of the courts and the Thai National Human Rights Institution. But interestingly, a very in important resource was the advocacy that had been undertaken by the civil society organizations on behalf of the aggrieved Cambodian villagers. These NGOs had actually conducted field research with these villagers and had published this field research in terms of what the villagers had asked for and in terms of what they had suffered since 2006. This gave, I think, the article some degree of a context beyond just what a pure legal article would have given. The other finding that has come out of this article is that apart even from the United Kingdom and from Thailand, there may be other areas of law and policy that governments need to be wary of when undertaking complex land acquisitions. So in this particular case, even though the land acquisition was done by, a, as I've mentioned, a Thai company, a British company and a Taiwanese company, it was only done because of a land concession in the first place. And this land concession was traced back to a senator in the ruling Cambodian People's Party. And that attaches some level of responsibility or blame on the government of the day. And it may be something I've, which I've argued, which it may be something that other ASEAN countries are going to be very careful not to do so that they do not have the scrutiny both of the press and of foreign courts uh, being brought to bear on their own conduct. And the final finding I would add is that a effective weapon, uh, I think, for villagers or other people who feel that they've been directly affected by land acquisitions unfairly uh, may not even just be the courts or obviously the press, but also to go to trade unions. So in the course of this litigation, a trade union called Bon Sucro, which is a sugar production trade union based in London, um, was notified of what had happened by Tate & Lyle, which is a British company, 
And after much negotiations and arguments that were made before them, they decided to suspend Tate and Lyle as a member of the trade union, which has had severe financial impact on Tate and Lyle. These would be my findings. What impact or contribution do you hope that this article will make going forward? I'm hoping that the main scholarly contribution that this article can make is to look beyond the original paradigm of either one on one hand deciding that human rights litigation cannot coexist with commercial litigation, right? So if people are bringing a particular claim for land that they've lost or commodities that they have lost or you know even personal injuries, that that cannot be linked to business conduct. I think I'm hoping that that can be seen to be separate. And the second paradigm that I hope this article will will shed some light on, or at least interrogate, would be that we would always imagine that US courts are the final bastions of justice in terms of uh, international justice. I think the Kyo Bell decision, which was decided in 2013, which concerned Shell in Nigeria, and where the US Supreme Court decisively held that it would not inquire into the conduct of foreign companies on foreign soil has been a wake-up call for many people, companies, governments and individuals. I think the result of this decision is not to Im immediately imagine that companies can do whatever they wish to do. I think the point should be that there still are limits, but it shouldn't be left just to the US courts or certain other courts to intervene that both regional institutions, like in this case, the Thai National Human Rights Institution, trade unions like Bon Sucro, the EU, and the UK courts all had a part to play. So it was a collective, multi-stakeholder response, which is the point that I think this article is trying to put forward. Are there important learning points for governments and policy makers around the world? Yes. I think specifically in terms of learning points for governments, this has informed this case in particular and a few other cases which are interlinked have informed the national action plans that governments have taken. Two governments that have been the first to declare national action plans would be the United Kingdom and the Netherlands in Europe. And I understand that in the Asian region, India is soon to follow. And these national action plans are informed by cases such as Song Mao because they are thinking about the responsibility that they have to bear, where they, in this case, for example, they allow a land concession, which ends up uh, contributing to business-related human rights abuse. These action plans will therefore then be a basis for governments and policymakers to figure out how they can structure their dealings in the future and perhaps do a higher degree of due diligence with the companies that they want to do business with. Can courts across the world or in this region learn from this case? For the courts, I think the, the greatest learning point of this is that perhaps in the future, their garden variety claims or causes of action may be more successful than far more complex human rights causes of action. There is a, there is a general uh, reluctance on courts, not just in Singapore, but across the world, to mix human rights concerns into commercial law concerns. And perhaps one way to cross this bridge is to say that at some level, whenever people are affected, wherever individual rights and responsibilities are in question, we don't even have to call it human rights. It could just be as simple as saying someone stole my property 
And if it's couched then in the language of conversion or theft or misuse of property, which is something that all courts will understand, uh, I, I've called this garden variety torts or garden variety wrongs. If it's couched in that language, perhaps it's much easier for courts across the world to start getting involved in this. And I think that we're going to see far more cases uh, in the future. And I'm hoping even that we're going to be seeing cases in the region, because as we know, Cambodia is not the only country dealing with um, such land acquisition. Land, forcible or compulsory land acquisition that may result in uh, villages losing their land without free prior or informed consent is prevalent in other countries, including Laos, Myanmar, and Thailand as well. Um, just to name a few in Southeast Asia. So as ASEAN heads towards a greater economic integration and is looking towards dispute resolution mechanisms and improving the capacity of its courts, I feel that these courts in the region are going to soon be dealing with this, these problems again and again. And ASEAN needs to be prepared, I think, or ASEAN's courts need to be prepared to deal with them. Thank you, Professor. Thank you very much.